0: On August 28, 2003, roughly around 1.30 p.m., Mamma Mia Pizzeria received a phone call for an order. The owner of the establishment could not understand the person on the other end, so he handed the phone to 46-year-old pizza delivery man Brian Well. He stated the call was for two sausage pizzas that would be delivered to 8631 Peach Street. He drives to the location to find that it was an abandoned radio station. After an hour passed, no one at the pizzeria knew where he was. At about 2.28pm, Brian Wells walked into a PNC bank in Erie, Pennsylvania. He walked into the suburban bank, and to be honest, it was pretty obvious something was up as he strolled in with a highly suspicious cane in his right hand and a strange bulge under the collar of his t-shirt. The way he nonchalantly walked in made it seem all the more bizarre. Wells casually walked up to the bank teller and handed her a note gather employees with access codes to the vault, and work fast to fill the bag with $250,000. You only have 15 minutes. He then proceeded to lift up his shirt to show the teller a homemade heavy bomb that was placed around his neck. And to further the terror, he told the teller that the cane he was holding was actually a shotgun in disguise. The teller told him that she could not open the vault, so instead she placed the money that she had access to in the bag, amounting to $8,702. During this time, the other workers at the bank were trying to hurriedly usher everyone out. After receiving the money in a small plastic bag, he took a sucker from the counter and left. He drove away to a nearby McDonald's, But it only took state troopers 15 minutes to find Wells and pull him over at an Eyeglass World parking lot. They quickly handcuffed him. Upon being told that he had a bomb around his neck, the troopers immediately backed away from him and secured the area. Wells continued to tell the police that a few black men had placed the bomb around his neck and forced him to commit the crime. The troopers called the bomb squad as well sat on the ground beside a police car lamenting. He pulled a key out and started a timer. I heard the thing ticking when he did it. It's going to go off, I'm not lying. He also continued to say that if he didn't complete the scavenger hunt, they would kill him. But he would also start telling the police nonsensical things like, can you call my boss and let him know that I'm not slacking off work? He even told the police. You know, maybe if you take the notes, you could complete the scavenger hunt to get the key. As the police continue to talk to Brian, the collar around his neck starts to beep. At this point, Brian becomes very erratic, stating that it was about to blow, asking them to get it off. The bomb squad arrived three minutes too late. The bomb had exploded, ripping a hole in his chest in the process. The tragic and shocking nature of Wells' death broadcast on live television, adding to the bizarre and gruesome notoriety of this case. After troopers examined Wells' car, they found a gun made to look like a cane and notes with instructions telling Wells what bank to rob, how much to request, and where to go for the next clue so he could have the bomb diffused. Officers went to location provided for the next, but again it was just another set of instructions. Investigators believed that the masterminds behind this scheme were also challenging them because Wells was wearing a white t-shirt with the word guess. To this day, authorities do not know the full extent of Wells' role in the bank robbery. He was caught up in the more sinister intentions of others, as the investigators found shocking motives behind the crime and the mind-boggling events that unfolded. Prepare to immerse yourself in a case that is as perplexing as it is tragic. I'll guide you through every twist and turn, shedding light on the motivations and mechanics of the key players, and unraveling the truth behind one of the most bizarre bank heists in American history. This isn't just a story about a bank robbery gone wrong. It's a tale of manipulation, mental illness, and the deadly consequences of desperate greed. These are the events that led up to Brian Wells walking into a bank with a bomb around his neck, in the chilling aftermath of his death. So are you ready to delve into the pizza bomber case? Brace yourself because this is a story that defies belief, challenges our understanding of human nature, and shows just how strange and dark reality can sometimes be. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found at TamsinLeeCrimsonson.podbean.com. As a caution, if you look up Brian Wells' name on Google, the very first image that is shown is of him lying on the ground after the bomb detonated. So if you are sensitive to these types of images, you have been warned. Don't do it. Also, I watched the documentary called Evil Genius on Netflix about this case because many articles in my research did not provide enlightening details. I do highly recommend watching the documentary because it was so well put together. However, the first episode does show the bomb detonating on Wells, so if you are also sensitive to that, like me, you have been warned. Because I was not, and could not, sleep that night after witnessing that. (laughs) There is also a video displaying the frozen individual from a case linked to the bank heist. So, again, there are some graphic visuals in this documentary. So as we dive into Brian Wells, let's learn a little about him. Wells was described as a very friendly person who was almost childlike. The woman he rented his house from said that Wells would often bring his mother to the movies and if there was a free concert he would bring his mother and her friend to go see it. He enjoyed little scavenger hunts that were in the local paper which generally led to some landmarks around town. So after Wells had casually walked into the PNC Bank in Pennsylvania, the first call about the robbery came at 2.32 p.m. After the operator asked the caller what the emergency was, the bank teller said, Yes, we just have been robbed. Yes, this is an emergency. Yes, this is an emergency. We have a bank robbery at PNC Bank. The guy just walked out with... I don't know how much cash in the bag he had a bomb or something or something wrapped around his neck after the series of events that occurred at the beginning of this episode police discovered nine pages of handwritten notes containing a series of instructions for brian the receptionist at the bank the bank manager and the police which robberies are generally straightforward right Every time you see a situation like this in movies or hear about it on the news, you hear that the perpetrator draws their gun and says, give me your money. But these were handwritten notes that had long drawn out instructions for certain individuals they were addressed to. So this was unusual to start with. In the notes, Brian was referred to as bomb hostage which featured a series of rules for him on the first page. The rules listed included, you must follow a course of instructions to find keys and combination codes to disarm the bomb. Do not insert keys into keyholes until instructed. Some keyholes are booby-trapped to prevent tampering. Drive 60 miles per hour throughout course. Use only two or three minutes at each stop. A sentry will be watching at each stop to ensure you are not being followed. Bomb has tripwires. Forcing or tampering with will detonate. All weapons, papers, containers, tapes, etc. must be returned to us. Each item you find after dropping money has a key and or combination words You will need to decipher the combination. This will disarm some tripwires before you unlock. This procedure is to make sure you leave no materials behind. After reading the notes, it would appear that Wells was sent on a life-or-death scavenger hunt. The instructions after the bank robbery were detailed. He would have to drive around Erie to find keys and combination codes to disarm the bomb. Without any leads, the police would follow the notes to the locations only to find another note that would lead to another location. After robbing the bank, Wells' next step was to go to McDonald's. Under the small sign reading drive Through, open 24 hours, in the flowerbed by the sign, there was a rock with a note taped to the bottom. It had the next instructions, but the police had pulled him over after he went to the McDonald's. So he was obviously onto his next set of instructions. Those instructions led to another set of instructions, which was located in the woods outside of town. The officers drive to the location mentioned in the set of instructions and find an orange ribbon and a jar that contains the next steps. While they were searching that location, Officer Lamont King stated that he noticed a blue minivan pull up in the tree line. The occupants saw the police officers, stopped, backed up, and then drove off, which is something strange and also very prevalent to the story. At this point in the investigation, it was determined that the FBI would take over because it was a bank robbery, which falls under federal investigation, but they would be assisted by the local police and since it occurred in their jurisdiction, and the ATF because explosives were involved. So in this one act, three government agencies were involved in this case. The FBI obtained a warrant to search Wells' house. They didn't find a lot in his home to further their investigation. However, they did find an address book containing a list of prostitutes, but they didn't find anything to link him to the bomb heist at that point in time. Which I am not including the whole address book containing a list of prostitutes to be crude to Wells or paint him as a bad person. This little fact is also important to the case. Deputy Coroner Korak Timon stated that it was about 3 a.m. when they finally moved his body because the authorities did not want to damage the cuff, which was the only piece of evidence they currently had. And because the note stated that it was booby-trapped, Timon stated that he had to surgically decapitate him. Investigators were able to determine that the phone call that the owner at Mama Mia's Pizzeria initially took but gave to Wells came from a payphone at a Shell gas station not far from the restaurant. The address provided to investigators brought them to an abandoned radio station where they uncovered a lot of evidence indicating that Wells had in fact been there. They were able to obtain tire impressions that matched Wells' vehicle, his shoe print, as well as a scuff mark in the dirt next to his footprint, which indicated to investigators that there was a struggle. But with all the evidence they recovered, investigators had no luck in forensics. There was insurmountable evidence they found, yet they could not find fingerprints or anything useful to the case to link any suspects. It was made apparent that due to the lack of forensic evidence, this case was going to involve someone spilling a secret. Somebody would have to come out to authorities and say, I have some information that can help you. A reporter named Scott Bremner, who covered the case, stated that for a small town, Erie has its share of bizarre events and had a number of things happen over the years. But there is nothing that captured the imagination of the public that raised so many questions that was just so sincerely bizarre as this case. It's a bank robbery, but a scavenger hunt. A guy has a cane gun, and it was actually loaded. He had the gesture shirt on, you know, guess what this is? It took on this mythic proportion because it just kept getting weirder. One instance that Bremner pointed out was that Erie is a small town with access to New York and Ohio. The scavenger hunt that the perpetrators put Wells through had him making a circle around the town and the crime scene, which made absolutely no sense. He pointed out in theory, if the perpetrators wanted to get away with robbing the bank, they would have had a better head start on authorities if they had jumped on I-90 and traveled 20 minutes to a different state. And I'm just putting this out there. Again, this is in theory and I do not condone this. Not only would it be stupid to do something like this, but it could ultimately hurt many people and you would still get caught. So don't do it. Again, with this fact, the scavenger hunt literally made no sense. As if the sad circumstances surrounding the botched bank robbery wasn't strange enough, soon news broke out that a co-worker of Brian Wells from Mamma Mia's Pizzeria was also found dead three days later. On Sunday, August 31st, Robert Thomas Panetti, who was a co-worker and friend of Wells, was found unresponsive by family members. An autopsy was conducted because Panetti did not have a life-threatening illness that would just unexpectedly cause his death. Really there was no reason for him to suddenly die. Authorities hoped that conducting an investigation into the mysterious death would help determine whether the two pizza workers were somehow connected. It was stated that Panetti's demeanor changed not long after Wells' death. He became suspiciously nervous. There were interviews with authorities where he was looking for some type of protection because he thought they were coming after him next. But when investigators went to the pizza shop to conduct an interview with him, Panetti asked if they could do it on Monday because he was working. The investigators agreed, but Monday never came because he died that Sunday evening. After conducting the autopsy, it was determined that Panetti died from either an accidental overdose or suicide. The agencies investigating Wells' case at this early stage thought there were three possible scenarios. The first is that Wells chose to rob the bank on his own, but then this leads to why would he strap a life bomb to himself. So I don't think this scenario really makes sense to anyone, including investigators. The second scenario was that Wells was abducted by others, told he had 20 minutes to rob the bank and get back or the bomb they attached would go off. The third scenario was that Wells and Robert Panetti planned the robbery together. But again, why would Wells put a live bomb on himself? Brian Wells' landlord stated that she knew Wells would go gambling with Panetti. So at the time of this incident with the third scenario, she thought maybe he could have needed money enough to rob a bank. But again, it seemed really out of character. Investigators determined that the homemade bomb that was strapped or cuffed rather to Wells's neck was something that would have taken someone a month to build in their spare time. The first timer that was attached to the bomb was most likely activated by the release of a cotter pin. There was a second cotter pin on it, and if that pin was pulled, it would have given Wells another hour. Investigators noted that there were a lot of red herrings that were incorporated into this device which was believed by the authorities to prevent the bomb squad from tampering with it. There were wires that did not do anything. There were just dummy wires. And even a plastic cell phone that didn't do anything. It was just a dummy cell phone. Reportedly, for its sophisticated design, it was just two pipe bombs and two timers. That was it. However, the biggest problem that investigators encountered with the device was that they could not match any of the components being purchased or any identifying tool marks that would further their investigation. The authorities also stated that the bomb itself was common, but the collar was what was unique in this case, containing four key locks and a tumbler lock. Its only purpose was to hold the bomb around Wells' neck. Of the four locks, only two were keeping the device locked. So if Wells had recovered two of the keys, he could have unlocked it. But authorities pointed out that they believe he was never going to find the keys. Many suspected that the perpetrators meant for him to die that day. To support this claim, authorities waited for the perfect conditions which Coincided with the day of Brian Wells' death to drive the route in which the scavenger hunt had him go. It was determined that he would not have had enough time to complete all the tasks before the detonation of that device. The backing of the bomb was scored or cut with a cutting tool in a pattern similar to a checkered board with the suspected intention to cause a shrapnel effect Investigators stated that the plate fractured when the bomb exploded, but it did not shrapnel like the builder intended because the scoring was not deep enough. Unfortunately, it did still cause a severe wound in Wells' chest that was approximately an inch deep and roughly 8 by 10 inches square, which killed him. Investigators even released a redacted copy of the handwritten instructions to the public in order to gain a reaction. They wanted to see if the public could help them determine the penmanship or the linguistics. However, investigators were doubtful that they would receive any information about the handwriting because it appeared that the letters were first typed on a typewriter and then the perpetrator traced them on a separate paper above the printed paper. Authorities in this case also released a profile of characteristics of what they believed that the perpetrator or perpetrators would have, such as the person being frugal, a pack rat who might save scrap metal, mechanically inclined, and could hide a violent nature. Which, as you will see, this description is spot on, let me tell you. I was shocked at how well this description matched. And I seriously want to know how these profilers are able to identify perpetrators like this. Three weeks after Brian Wills' death, 911 received a call from a man stating, At 8645 Peach Street, in the garage, there is a frozen body. It's in the freezer. There's a woman there you might want to pick up in question. The dispatcher asked how he knew that. He replied, trust me, I know. The dispatcher asked who he was, to which he stated, I'm the guy who lives there. The dispatcher asked, what is your name, sir? He says, Bill Rothstein. The dispatcher asked, and what is her name? Marjorie Deal. The dispatcher asked, and who is she to you? I'll give you guys my story later on. Upon contacting authorities, Bill Rothstein admitted to being afraid of Marjorie. He stated, she is extremely intelligent, extremely intelligent, manipulates people. Do you know what manic depressives are? That's what she is. Bipolar swings very quickly, one way or the other. He continued on the phone with Trooper Gluth, stating that he needed to go get her. She is in his house. There's a body in a freezer in the garage, and she killed the guy, who was her boyfriend. He told the officer that she wanted him to put the frozen body in a wood chipper. I can't do that. you got to go get her. The trooper then told Rothstein that he needed to come to the station and tell them what he knew there also telling him that he would be safer there, to which Rothstein agreed. Authorities knew that there was something more to this. This was the same street that Wells delivered pizza to, and now they had a dead body in the freezer. Gluth stated that it was odd that this was happening around Bill's house, and thought there was no way he could have been involved because He had met the guy at a wedding once, and the impression Bill gave Trooper Gluth, it didn't seem like he was that type of person. The documentary on Netflix of this case has an interview that was conducted between police and Rothstein that is worth watching. I will go over the basics of the conversation. He stated that he knew a person since the 60s or 70s, and they used to date. She stated that there was a body in her house that she wanted removed. She said that she murdered him. When Lamont James was put on as the lead into the investigation, he walked into Rothstein's house, which was just littered with so many things. There was so much stuff in the way and just everywhere. Rothstein was obviously a hoarder. Marjorie was there, causing a fuss because she wanted the police to leave. After placing her under arrest and bringing her to the station, she was constantly muttering to herself that Rothstein killed the man in the freezer, and how she was going to sue Rothstein and everyone else. The way she was muttering made it apparent to investigators that she had some trouble with mental health. The man whose body was in the freezer was James Roden. He was frozen so much so that it took four days for his body to be thawed so coroners could perform an exam. It was determined that he was murdered with a shotgun. During this investigation, the FBI learned that James Roden was murdered three weeks before the botched bank heist. His frozen corpse was in Rothstein's garage during their search of the nearby radio station. They were literally right next door to the garage. The FBI then wanted to talk with Rothstein, asked about the connection between Rodin and Wells. Rothstein sold up in the interview tape and stated, No, there's no connection. The agent probed the question again, wondering why they couldn't talk about it. I mean, it's recent news, why not talk about it? Rothstein said that he just wasn't comfortable with it, and I forgot to mention this part, but when the FBI agent walked into the room to start questioning Rothstein, he introduced himself as an agent with the FBI, and Rothstein told him, I am the smartest person in this room, which is odd, just saying that that is a weird way to greet someone. And I'm sorry, if you so openly state that to me, I'm just gonna kinda throw away everything you have to tell me afterward. (laughs) Because I'm sorry, that makes you seem so suspicious, begging a challenge to be made. So before I go any further, I want to tell you a little bit about Marjorie Deal Armstrong. She is claimed to be smart, but also mentally ill when she was 23 years old, she took herself to see a therapist because she said she was scared. However, after researching this case, I'm not so sure that she was mentally ill. Like, yeah, okay, she is mentally ill, but she hid behind that excuse a lot. She knew how to play it and whip it out, and I'm sorry, if you're gonna hide behind that as an excuse for your actions, you know what you're doing. Y- you know it. Regardless, she told the doctor she was most sad about her inability to have close, gratifying relationships. From December 1973 to June 1974, she received treatment through Hammett Community Mental Health Services. Her presenting problems included nervousness, tension, anxiety, and an expressed inability to have close, gratifying relationships. The focus of her treatment was individual therapy, but it was perceived that she was defensive and showed little commitment to making any changes, and therefore her improvement was considered doubtful. Her final diagnosis was a passive-aggressive personality with hysterical features. She was seen by numerous physicians over the years who gave her many different diagnoses, such as bipolar, mania, and pressured speech. One psychiatrist suggested Marjorie wasn't mentally ill, only suffering from narcissism and a severe personality disorder. But whatever the actual case was, she struggled with daily life, couldn't hold down a job, and started letting herself go. Another thing to note about Marjorie, most of the men in her life did not seem to last very long. And I'm not talking about them just breaking up. One time, she was briefly married to a man named Richard Armstrong. He suddenly died after falling and hitting his head on their coffee table. Marjorie sued the hospital for negligence and won a $175,000 settlement. Before he was buried, she asked for a piece of his leg bone in case she might be able to clone him in the future. Then there were other boyfriends. One was claimed to have hung himself after she moved out The other, she bragged about murdering in 1984, and she bragged about it because she got away with it, stating that it was self-defense. She shot him unloading the clip while he slept on the couch, and she got away with it. According to Scott Bremner, there were at least five men in her life that died prematurely of either strange circumstances or by outright violence. So now back to Bill Rothstein. His family ran the Coca-Cola bottling plant in town. He was a rich kid, an outcast at school who was bullied, kicked in the shins, and called something derogatory referring to his religion that I do not feel comfortable stating. After graduating, he took a couple of college classes, but dropped out to start working in the family business, soon making lifelong friends. One of these friends stated that Rothstein was his best man at his wedding, He was kind, open, generous, helpful, and a perfect friend. He further stated that he didn't think Bill had a mean bone in his body. He said that Rothstein wasn't a finisher, but he was extremely intelligent. He would get close to completing something and then he'd just move on to something else. The friend stated that he met Marjorie when he returned from service in either 1974 or 75 and told Bill that he didn't like her. He thought she was very nasty, controlling, and thought the world revolved around her. She thought she could do anything she wanted and get away with it. The friend recounted that there was something about her that dug into Rothstein. He said, It went beyond a boyfriend-girlfriend type of thing. It was like somehow she got into his psyche and just lived there i mean look what happened no normal person goes and picks up a dead body and throws it in their freezer i even asked him why he did that and he had no concrete answer bill and marjorie had a very odd relationship they were always on again off again they were even engaged at one point which that doesn't make it odd What makes it odd is what everyone on the outside, who didn't like Marjorie, had to say about her, and how she changed Bill, I guess you could say. So their relationship with each other was very confusing to say the least. Deal's house was also cluttered, which we found because police went into her house to find evidence for the Roden case, but it took them a while, as the house was in horrible condition with so much trash, debris, and feces. The Humane Society even came to her house to take away two deceased cats that were found in her home and to leave food and water for the living ones that were still inside. Marjorie of course blamed Bill for killing her boyfriend, Jim Roden, and that she was framed. She would make outlandish claims that Bill was jealous of Roden And if Bill couldn't have her, then no one could. So as Marjorie sat in jail and under investigation, Rothstein remained free on bail because he was cooperating with police and agreed to give investigators a tour of the crime scenes of the James Roden murder. Rothstein claimed that he felt there were only two ways out of his actions. Since he helped Marjorie bring the body to his house and put him in the freezer, He could either go to the police for helping Marjorie or attempt suicide. Investigators found a three-page suicide note in his house in a list format. Number one in the notes was that this has nothing to do with the Wells case, which is odd, right? Why would you openly write this in a note pertaining to a homicide of someone who had no link to the pizza bomber case? There was no evidence that the two people even knew each other. There was no evidence that any of them knew each other. So why would you write that? Investigators questioned him about it, to which he stated that He knew they would think that this had something to do with that case, so he didn't want them to waste their time on it for a couple of years. Regardless, it was a stupid claim that investigators still looked into. He was given a lie detector test, but he passed. However, no one was surprised that he passed because he even at one point fell asleep. During the bank heist, Rothstein was entangled in a family feud. His brother and sister wanted him to sell the family home they all grew up in, which Rothstein was currently living in rent-free, but of course he didn't want to move. He lied to his siblings, telling them he put the house on the market for $90,000. It was actually on the market for $250,000 the exact same amount that was requested during the bank robbery. But this wasn't the only secret Rothstein was keeping. Something that Bill neglected to tell the FBI was that he had a roommate, who was an old friend named Floyd Stockton, who decided to move out the day after the bank heist. Rothstein kept this secret from authorities. Marjorie was actually the one who told them about Rothstein's roommate. He was apparently living with Rothstein because he was on the run from the law. He left because there was too much heat from the Wells case. And the reason he was on the run? He was wanted by authorities after he raped a disabled teenage girl. After locating him, the FBI had him take a lie detector test, which he also passed. As a result, with nothing coming to fruition with evidence or the lie detector tests, Rothstein and Stockton were cleared by the FBI. This was an unfavorable decision by many because he literally had a dead body in his freezer while some unknown perpetrator strapped a bomb to a pizza delivery driver's neck next door. It baffled many as to how they were so readily cleared But the fact at this point in the investigation was that they had no evidence leaking Rothstein and Stockton to Wells' case. Was everything surrounding Rothstein and Stockton highly suspicious? Very much so. But if authorities cannot make a connection and they cannot find the evidence, then they could be in trouble for harassment, or worse yet, if they were to bring them to court, they could risk the perpetrators walking away scot-free with no proof of their involvement which would also bring even more legal lawsuits their way. So, to be honest, it becomes a very, very thin line for authorities to walk, which I'm not trying to defend one side or the other because seriously, the proof was all around them. However, it was never handed to the FBI, which I will get into later. So, this is why the public and Wells' family had become so angry with investigators. In January 2004, Rothstein was in court to testify against Marjorie for the murder of James Roden. Marjorie did not say one word during the trial. While Marjorie sat in the court taking the heat, Rothstein cut a very good deal for cooperating with investigators and would only spend a few years in prison for misdemeanor charges. He was also allowed to be out on bail until his sentencing in the fall. While the media was briefly interviewing Marjorie as she was being taken away in handcuffs, she outwardly stated that Bill Rothstein should be charged with the murder of Brian Wells. No one even questioned what she meant by that. But to be fair, she stated it after another rambling of Bill trying to rape her, which one officer looked at her sideways for, and it was kind of funny. But still, the fact that no one asked her to elaborate and no one decided to ask Bill what she could have meant by that either is strange. Bill Rothstein died of terminal cancer before serving any time. His final diagnoses included non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, pneumonia, pleural effusions, right lower extremity DVT, and hypothyroidism. After a year to a year and a half, the public became outraged and authorities were frustrated because they had no leads about the heist. They didn't have any arrests related to Brian Wells' death. According to a former inmate named Gloria Bishop, who was housed with Marjorie for about three months in 2003, she had the unfortunate fate of getting to know her. She stated that one day at a metal picnic table, her, Marjorie, and several other inmates were sitting. Bishop was sitting with and talking to someone who Marjorie didn't like. Marjorie said, I can't believe you talked to her. I can't stand her. I see her in the med line and I just want to bash her head in like a watermelon and watch the seeds pop out. Marjorie confessed to her cellmates that she shot her boyfriend, James Roden, because they were having a fight about another woman. Bishop stated, no remorse whatsoever, none. Never one time did she shed a tear for James Roden. She further stated that there were tin trays on the walls that the inmates would use as mirrors and Marjorie would stand there for hours shaving her eyebrows with just this creepy look on her face for hours she would just stand there and do that she had one face she would show to the guards and one to us the woman is a mastermind manipulator master at manipulation she would say that if the district attorney got too close she would just play the crazy card Marjorie Deal Armstrong requests a plea deal claiming she wasn't in her right mind when she killed James Roden. She was sent to a mental institution where she would serve a minimum of seven years, but could potentially get out early on good behavior. Bishop stated she murdered two people, and that's all she gets. Somewhere where the food is better. Her words, exactly, that the food is better. As she was locked up, Marjorie wanted to be placed closer to her attorney and essentially her money. So she sent a letter to the police insisting that she had information about the pizza bomber case. She wrote, I know Bill Rothstein is involved in it. It was pertinent with the police because she stated she knew, not believed, she knew without a doubt, that Bill Rothstein was involved. Trooper Gluth also stated she wrote that there was another person involved in the case and he was keeping tabs on it as if he was infatuated with it. Unfortunately, this meant she had control of the interview. Anytime she did not want to give up the person's name or how she knew any of this information, she would just walk away or say, I'm not talking anymore. Trooper Gluth alerted the FBI that Marjorie Deal Armstrong claimed to have information about the bank heist. He was then asked to join the bank heist case by the FBI. All of Marjorie's items that were put into storage after her arrest were now offered to the FBI. After spending days going through all of the junk in all of the boxes, they finally found a clue. There was an angry letter that Marjorie wrote to a bank. According to the letter, the manager let Marjorie's father empty out a family safety deposit box that supposedly contained valuables belonging to her. She was furious with her father and the bank, which was the PNC Bank, the very one Brian Wells robbed. The FBI agents would go to interview Marjorie and she would spend the first few minutes yelling obscenities at the agents and just going off about random things. But once the agents complimented her, she would instantly calm down and become more civil. One day, she told them, I'll talk to you about the Wells case, but only if you move me closer to Erie. The agent tried to level with her, stating that he would see what he could do, but I mean, she was in the state system, he was in the federal system, so there was like, you know, a barrier there. But he promised, you know, he would make some calls to see if they could make something happen for her in exchange for the information she knew. So to the agents, she was very manipulative. She was very careful with her words and gave answers that were very limited. The agents commented that she was feeling them out as much as they were feeling her out. A few weeks later, she was transferred somewhere closer to Erie, and agents hoped she would provide new information about the heist. That was basically the trade-off, right? But she didn't give them any new information. She just kept implicating Bill Rothstein as the mastermind. I mean, implicating Bill Rothstein as the mastermind would keep the heat off of her, right? Means that he would take all the blame for it, but he was dead. So it just seemed like another mind play. But again, I don't know. You tell me what you think by the end of all of this. (laughs) Finally, she told a reporter something new. She thought that it was very suspicious that after the bank heist, Rothstein had a blue van at his house towed away and then didn't tow it back until After he had been cleared as a suspect from the FBI. In the documentary, this reporter shows the image he captured of the van in Rothstein's driveway to Lamont King, who witnessed a blue van at one of the scavenger hunt locations. He confirmed that that was the van he saw. After this, authorities began digging through everything, all the evidence, all the reports written up by officers to see if there was anything else they may have missed. After reviewing the evidence footage, authorities then believed that Rothstein built the device because during the walkthrough of his home, there was a sheet of paper with a drawing on it, which was seen on the collar bomb. Nearly two years after the heist, Media outlets found some new clues to the case which indicated that Marjorie had some involvement in the Pizza Bomber case. A witness was driving down I-90 and noticed a vehicle described as gold in color coming at him at a high rate of speed. The person driving the vehicle was a woman with wild eyes. The witness said that her eyes were unmistakable. It was Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Why hadn't anyone reported this to the FBI? The witness stated that he had called the FBI numerous times about the incident that occurred the day of Brian Wells's death, but was never formally interviewed. But because this witness went to the media, the FBI was now interested in hearing the witness. Marjorie admitted to being on I-90, but denied going the wrong way down the interstate and stated it had nothing to do with the Wells case. Obviously, she was placed near the crime scene and because she was seen by someone implicating her, she had to say, yeah, I was there, but for a different reason. One night, a family was watching America's Most Wanted and a UPS driver placed Deal, Armstrong and Rothstein at the gas station payphone around the time Wells took the order at the pizzeria. The driver did not call America's Most Wanted, he just directly called the FBI making a report that he saw the two because Rothstein always wore his blue overalls. That stuck out in his mind because it was August and it was still warm outside. So authorities went to Erie County Jail where Marjorie was housed at and started talking to the inmates who would speak to her while she was there. They told the agents that Marjorie had told them she killed James Roden because he was going to uncover the pizza bomb plot. One of the inmates even wrote down notes. The notes not only shed light on the Jim Roden murder, but also the bank heist. Unfortunately, the notes were put into a folder called snitch letters In 2003 and weren't given to the FBI until 2005. The notes indicated that Bill Rothstein did indeed build the bomb, Floyd Stockton was definitely involved in the heist, and that the heist was linked to the dubbed frozen body case. Most astonishing was that Marjorie mentioned Brian Wells stating it's not like we didn't measure his neck for the collar. In July of 2005, the FBI requests to speak to Floyd Stockton, who was currently in prison for the rape charges he was running away from now in Washington State. In the agent's opinions, his demeanor, body language, the way he spoke, they felt that he had a lot of information that he was not willing to give up. They also tracked down and interviewed a man named Ken Barnes again, who was a fishing buddy of Marjorie's and who was also reportedly new, Brian Wells. He was initially interviewed during the James Roden case. He knew Wells because they had a mutual friend who was a prostitute named Jessica Hoopsick. It was also revealed that Wells would drive Hoopsick to Ken's house to purchase cocaine Wells and the friend would do their transaction on the second floor of Ken's home and then she would purchase her fix from Ken. Authorities located her and interviewed her about Wells and the bank heist investigation. Agents believed she knew more than what she was telling them, but she would not release any information of what she knew to the investigators. Investigators then conducted a search of Ken Barnes' home, just like Rothstein's house and just like Marjorie's house. There was so much clutter, so much junk. The investigators couldn't tell if they were stepping on something or standing on the floor. Investigators also noted that they found a lot of computer towers. They did not find anything that linked him to creating the bomb, But they found magazines on building electronics that could be utilized in an explosive device. Ultimately, Barnes denies any involvement in the heist, but reveals that Marjorie has a motive. During his second police interview, he stated that Marjorie solicited him to do the bank robbery and to kill her dad. Her father was giving away what she thought was her inheritance, It was confirmed that he was giving away money to neighbors to buy cars and other things so marjorie became upset and solicited barnes to kill him her motive was to rob the bank to acquire money to pay for barnes to kill her father but barnes claimed that he was never going to follow through with the murder but this is up for debate Even though this story sounds outlandish, it wasn't the first time Ken brought it up. During the frozen body investigation in 2003, Ken reported that Marjorie wanted to hire him as a hitman. Unfortunately, for some unknown reason, police never passed that information along to the FBI, just like the notes. In the interview, Barnes states, she asked me if I'd kill her dad, I said, Why? There was a lot more money in the estate that was to be willed to her when he died. And she said he'd been giving sums of a hundred thousand dollars donated to the church and giving it away to all his friends. She said that he's giving away her inheritance, and she was obsessed with it. And of course, I was just joking with her and I said, well, Margie, that will cost you. She goes, how much? I said, quarter million. And I was playing with her. And I said, I want half up front. I said, I wanted $100,000 up front. He commented that he was just playing with her, that he would not kill another person. The detective in the room asked if she was serious about it. Barnes replied, Oh, yeah. She was serious about that. She wanted that money. Marjorie's defense to these claims? Oh, please. Ken Barnes is so stupid. I killed two boyfriends. I killed two boyfriends out of self-defense. And yes, she did backtrack on that one because, you know, it's as if she realized she said something stupid. You know, like she murdered someone in cold blood. She continued... Would I have to hire Ken Barnes to kill my father if I hated my father and wanted him dead? Or would I do it for free? Come on, be reasonable. Marjorie's father, Harold Deal, stated the two of them used to be close when she was little, fishing together when he wasn't on the road selling aluminum siding. Agnes, his wife, was a school teacher who passed away in 2000. The couple doted on their only child. When their child started behaving oddly and began hoarding, her parents were saddened. But it's not entirely certain if the parents really understood that their daughter had a serious mental illness. Harold stated that they had spoiled Marge growing up. Later in life, she couldn't hold down a job, so they gave her money. She bought two houses and some land where she kept a classic car, but she didn't take care of any of it. When she started getting into trouble with the law, Harold stopped giving Marjorie money and started giving the small fortune he'd saved, which was estimated around a million dollars. He started giving it to friends and neighbors. He stated, I don't want to give her any money because that's just a tool to make her commit more crimes. I don't have a hell of a lot to do and if I ain't helping somebody, well then I don't know what to do." The father also stated that he was proud of his daughter when she was a little girl, but he found it hard to believe her most of the time because she was a good liar. He also admitted that she'd come around if she wanted something, and that's all. So now, because Barnes started implicating her as the mastermind behind the heist, Marjorie decided that somehow Barnes must have been in on the robbery heist case. When agents brought her for a ride around town to the locations she was at during the heist, she told the agents that Rothstein had requested two kitchen timers from her, and she gave them to him. This was an important bit of information for the FBI, because even though the media had a lot of information released about this case to the public, the media and the public did not know that there were, in fact, two timers. After stating this, she told the investigators that's it. I just put my head in the lion's mouth and I'm done. So they brought her back to jail. Marjorie always claimed that she didn't need to rob a bank, bragging about all the money she had, which she did have a lot of money from her parents, lawsuits, and from government assistance. But investigators sat and waited for another clue. On December 9th, 2005, Ken Barnes confessed that he was in on the heist and that Marjorie was the mastermind. Barnes confessed that before the day of the robbery, there was a pre-robbery meeting at Rothstein's house to discuss roles for each person. Investigators asked who was present at that meeting, he stated, Rothstein, Marjorie Deal." Floyd Stockton, Bob Panetti, and he said Brian Wells was also there. He stated that his role in the heist was to be a lookout. Marjorie came to his house shortly before noon on August 28, 2003. From a voice recording, he said, she picked me up. I said, what's going on? She said, today's the day of the bank robbery. I said, oh. Jim was supposed to drive the getaway car, so I said, where's Jim? She goes, he's in bed, I think he's sick with the flu, and made the pizza call. We went from there up to his house, and we were up at the tower site, with Rothstein waiting while Brian came up. Brian delivered the pizza. He got out of the car and put the pizza on the trunk. Brian was standing there waiting to get paid for the pizza. Marjorie, Rothstein, and me were eating pizza when Stockton brought the bomb out from the back of the building, I don't know, probably within three feet of Brian. And Brian at that point looked like he was terrified, like he knew there was something wrong and he started to run. That's when I walked up to him and said, come on, quit being a puss, and I smacked him one. And that's when Rothstein pulled out the gun, shot it in the air and told him he wasn't going anywhere. Marjorie and Rothstein grabbed a hold of him, tackled him down. They were holding him, and Marjorie and Stockton put the bomb on him, and he says, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. And I don't know if he thought it was real, or if he thought it was fake, or what the situation was. The t-shirt, Marjorie put that on him to cover up the bomb. Somebody gave him the note and says, He was supposed to hand it to get $250,000. Marjorie said, if you happen to get caught, tell them some black guys held you down. Put the bomb on you. That way it won't bring any heat to us. They gave him a shotgun and said, if you have trouble, just use this. We went from there back out and up to the parking lot of Eaton Park, which was across the street and over the hill from the bank. This is where Marjorie and Barnes sat in a vehicle and observed the bank being robbed through binoculars. They took turns passing the binoculars to each other. What we really needed them for was to see down into the front part of the bank. And as she was looking down in there, she goes, ha ha ha, looks like somebody just robbed a bank. I said, well, let me see. And at that point, the cops were coming in and I said, let's get the hell out of here. From there, they drive to Peach Street to Rothstein's house, meeting up with Bill, switch vehicles, and that's when Marjorie gets back on the highway going in the wrong direction. Barnes also said, later on that day when I was at home watching the TV, I felt bad because it wasn't supposed to happen. As far as I knew, it was supposed to be fake. As far as I knew, or he knew, or anybody else knew, it wasn't supposed to be real. But between Marjorie and Rothstein, they ended up making it real. With Ken's confession, they headed back to a Washington state prison to confront Floyd Stockton, Bill Rothstein's roommate and the guy Ken claimed to help lock the bomb around Brian Wells' neck. Stockton knew he was cornered by Barnes's confession, But his attorney was still able to get him an incredible deal. He would receive immunity in exchange for testifying against Marjorie. This is when the investigators find that Stockton had been keeping secrets too. Stockton mentioned that at Rothstein's request, he may have asked him to help make a couple of the pieces of the collar, but it didn't work out. He didn't do them properly so Rothstein took over. Investigators brought Stockton back to the radio tower where he indicated Marjorie Deal armstrong was there. He was ordered by Rothstein to place the device around the neck of Brian Wells. He stated that when he approached Wells with the device, he could see the fear in his eyes and he became a little upset about what he was about to do. After putting it on, Stockton wanted to get away from there as soon as possible and started walking down the tower site location. He stated that he was serpentining or, you know, like meandering around because he thought he was going to get shot in the back. And because he knew he was a convicted sexual predator, no one would care if he died. Investigators felt that Stockton should have been charged with something pertaining to the case, but when looking at the case as a whole, he appeared to be less culpable than the others. In the confessions, it is only stated that Stockton strapped the bomb around Wells's neck. While this is horrible and I'm sure is a crime on multiple levels, this is speculated to be like the only thing Stockton did pertaining to this case. And seriously, I think he should have been charged with something also, but he was probably the easiest one out of all the key suspects to give immunity to. While Barnes and Stockton answered a lot of questions, there were some that remain a mystery. Both stated that they had no idea who actually built the bomb and the cane gun, who wrote the notes, or who was actually the mastermind. No one knows, out of Marjorie and Bill, who was the one who set the notion out there, you know, let's rob a bank. No one knows. Both men also could not tell investigators anything about the involvement of Panetti, Brian's co-worker. Panetti's role is still a mystery to this day. Even though both men implicated Wells as being in on the heist, neither of them could say how or when he was recruited. At this point, it is speculated that each individual is segregated. That way the truth is, you know, undetectable. Basically keep the lower levels apart so they can't unfold the true story. However, the implication that Brian Wells was no longer a victim, but actually a willing participant created backlash from the Wells family, which is understandable because during the investigation, it appeared that Wells was a willing participant in the plan, even though he most likely did not agree to having a live bomb placed around his neck, but because of criminal laws, since he was implicated as having a role in the case by co-conspirators, no murder charges would be brought against any of them. However, the public remained unconvinced that Brian was in on the heist and that everyone in custody should be charged with murder. Prosecutors were hopeful that Marjorie Deal would accept a plea deal because this would take away any appeal issues she may have, but she went to court stating she was not guilty. She had to be proven mentally fit to help in her own defense, but many doctors stated that she was too unstable. A lawyer who defended Marjorie in 1984 for murdering her boyfriend stated that defending her was my punishment on earth. She could be talking about one thing and then start talking about birds or God knows what. She had to brush her teeth 32 times a day. It's just amazing to me. Four times I had her committed And four times, the mental health system found her to be competent. We shouldn't be talking about a collar bomb or we shouldn't be talking about FBI agents and ATF agents. She should have been confined. She was sick. She was disturbed. And anybody that was around her knew that. You have to deal with this disease. If you have a disease that won't get better and your thinking is way off, why jeopardize society by putting this person on trial? They'll be acquitted. The attorney started to become very frustrated as he adamantly stated his concerns with Deal Armstrong. After months of psychiatric treatment and medications, After months of psychiatric treatment and medication, the judge declared Marjorie competent and set a date for what was now being called Erie's Trial of the Century. Marjorie was ecstatic about her day in court, but was even happier to learn that Stockton would not be able to testify against her in court because he needed heart surgery something that she felt would be favorable in her case. Seven years after the heist, on October fifteenth, 2010, Marjorie would appear in court. Over the next several days, witnesses took the stand to testify they had seen her at various locations near the scene. The inmates whom Marjorie confessed to also took the stand. One inmate stated that Marjorie had told them, they were all afraid of receiving the death penalty and would watch each other's backs. One shocking witness to take the stand was Wells' favorite prostitute, Jessica Hoopsick. She testified that one night while she was on Barnes's front porch, she overheard a conversation about a bank robbery and a woman was there, but she didn't know who she was. But then, it was Marjorie's turn to take the stand. She went into the details of her childhood and how abusive it was and started crying and really playing on people's heartstrings. Many thought with all the evidence against her, there was no way she would be found innocent until she played her theatrics when she took the stand. That's when everyone was like, oh my, you know, they were like, oh no. After 10 days in court, the jury begins deliberations. After a day and a half, the jury was able to finally reach a verdict. The jury found her guilty on all counts for her actions surrounding the events of August 28th, 2003. They found her guilty of conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, armed bank robbery in which death resulted in use of a destructive device in furtherance of a crime of violence. In February 2011, Marjorie would receive her sentencing, but before the sentencing, the judge stated that the defendant has a long history of mental illness, but there are people with these conditions who do not solicit to kill their father or shoot someone in cold blood to silence a perceived threat or seal a man's fate by strapping a ticking bomb to his neck. It is worth noting, Miss Armstrong was an excellent student who graduated 12 out of 413 students in her high school class. She went on to obtain a bachelor's degree in sociology as well as a master's degree in education. All of which begs the question as to what might have been He then sentenced her to life imprisonment plus 30 years. One of Marjorie's best friends from childhood who had known her since 1962 stated that Marjorie had a very magnetic aura about her. However, she was left speechless by Armstrong's actions before saying, as children, we could never have imagined this happening. The utter waste of somebody who was really a star, I mean intellectually and physically, beautiful woman with great charisma, music talent, brains, love for animals, just a waste. The case is closed in terms of being on paper because people were convicted of the crime. However, for many, the case is still a bizarre mystery some things that still haunt people about this case is how much did wells know of the heist how culpable was he was he played by these people or was he an active participant with these people or was he just a completely duped pizza delivery guy who just happened to show up unfortunately This is a case where we will never know what exactly happened. The two co-conspirators cannot tell what happened. Bill Rothstein is dead, Brian Wells never had a chance to defend himself, Marjorie Deal Armstrong will only claim she is innocent and framed. But the story isn't over just yet. Years later, Jessica Hoopsick ended up in jail where she reported that she and Brian Wells had actually became really good friends. He knew her mother, he knew her sister, he would take her to the doctor, and they would go grocery shopping. She claims that there were special feelings between them, not claiming it was love, but just definitely some special feelings between the two of them. Apparently, while serving time, There was a conflict that occurred between Hoopsick and Marjorie, but neither one would divulge the reason. However, Jessica got a restraining order against Marjorie and was moved to a new facility. It wasn't until she was on a work release program that she finally confessed. One day, I walked in Ken's house and him and a couple of his friends were planning on robbing a bank. He wanted me to find a gopher to rob the bank for him. He wanted somebody who they could scare into doing this, that would not run or call the cops. They said it wasn't going to be real. It was just going to be a scare tactic to scare him into going to rob the bank. They offered me $5,000. I was high for about three days and I called Ken and told him, can you give me some money now if I tell you his name? He said, I can give you some crack now. And I said, okay. I went down there and said, well, I know this guy named Brian and he's, you know, a pushover. You could probably use him. I set it up for the next week for to bring Brian over there. So I brought Brian over there. Then he's seen who Brian was but I didn't introduce them or anything. I just took Brian in, seen him, and then took him out. They asked me for his work schedule. Then the next day, Marjorie gave me $1,500. When asked if she believed Brian was at the pre-robbery meeting, she said she didn't believe he was there because she was with him for a few hours that day between 12.30 and 2.30 p.m. And she knew he was supposed to go to work at four that evening he would've only had enough time to get ready to go to work before showing up for his shift. She also stated that she had a lot of remorse for a lot of stuff she did and a lot of shame and guilt and she definitely wants justice for Brian's memory. She stated he wasn't out to hurt anyone. He had no parts in planning. He had no idea what would happen to him but because marjorie was so unstable calculating and manipulative the answers to this case will forever remain a mystery she took all of these secrets to the grave and no one has ever been charged with the murder which was a public execution by all rights of brian wells Marjorie Deal Armstrong died of cancer on April 4th, 2017 and is buried in an unmarked grave close to the Texas facility where she was incarcerated. Ken Barnes suffered from diabetes and died in prison on June 20th, 2019. Floyd Stockton was the last suspect to die which was recently of acute respiratory failure in Bellingham, Washington on August 20th, 2022. Jessica Hoopsit gave birth shortly after the heist. She believes the father of the baby is Brian Wells, and it is reported that the child bears an uncanny resemblance to him. Do you think Brian Wells was innocent and the perpetrators were only claiming he was in on it to avoid being charged with murder? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and I will see you for the next episode. Bye.